we are saved by grace and not by works. Or as Paul put it in the book of Romans, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But is that what he meant? I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. again to Gospel Doctrine. This is a podcast covering the Come Follow Me lessons in the Sunday School curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Today's lesson, Romans chapters 1 through 6, the power of God unto salvation. Before we begin, this week's question comes from Rinda in Kanab. She says, just wondering your thoughts on how the believers were not called Christians in the New Testament until after Christ's death. But in the Book of Mormon, in Alma chapter 46, those who are looking forward to Christ's coming are called Christians. Two different continents and times. Thank you for that question, Rinda. So as we discussed, the word Christian was almost an epithet applied to Christians in Antioch. It was a Greek word with a Latin suffix, meaning they were owned by Christ or slaves to Christ. And as we'll discuss today, it puts Christ in a position as we transact a bargain with him. He is our patron and we are his clients in this bargain of grace. And that is the relationship under which we can be called Christians in the in the Greek and Latin sense of the word. Now obviously we don't know the original language that was used to write the Book of Mormon. We have some evidence that it was Hebrew And that may have been the case for the entire history of the Book of Mormon people, or it may have been that their language slowly changed over time. That's another process we'll discuss today. So all we know is that those who believed in Christ, all we know about the Book of Mormon believers was that those who believed in the Christ that was to come were called Christians. We don't have as much linguistic freedom to interpret what that meant. So I look forward to dissecting it a little bit more next year when we study the Book of Mormon. But for now, all we know is that in the Book of Mormon, Christian meant simply a believer in Christ that was to come. Thank you for your question, Rinda. As always, if you'd like to ask a question or have your comments read on the air, then uh, please email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. All right. I want to begin by talking a little bit about uh, a subject that most of you won't care about at all, and so I'll be brief, but this is the legal controversy of originalism versus living document. And this is an argument that scholars, legal scholars have in the United States over how to interpret the Constitution. So the Constitution is a document written about 230 years ago, and the interesting thing about it is that in even that brief amount of time, the words that the original framers used have changed their meaning. And one one example is the idea of the right to bear arms. And one of the phrases used in the Second Amendment to the Constitution is a well-regulated militia. For example, the phrase well-regulated today means one thing, and it, it generally means that a government somewhere Uh, a bureaucrat is overseeing how it is administered. 
and this is not what it meant in the time of the original constitutional writing. And so how should we interpret that phrase, well-regulated? And what does a militia mean? Does it mean uh, an, a government-organized body of armed men, or does it mean people that are volunteers in a force that appears almost spontaneously? These are important questions when we discuss the right to bear arms. Uh, and if you're, if you're not an American, then you can understand, I, think, I hope you can understand a little bit of why it would matter, why we would argue about such things. Well, the, the philosophy today is either that we interpret the document as it was originally intended. We take these words and we use the meanings that they had at the time that it was written. And that way, we, we take the intent and not necessarily the modern meaning of the words that we take the original intent. That's the originalist view. But there's also a living document view that you take the meaning that we have today and therefore the, the Constitution itself is subject to changing interpretations. And those who believe in a living document believe that that's the way that it should be. For example, the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution forbids discrimination on basis of race. But uh, those who believe in a living document would say that segregation was legal, it was constitutional in the United States until such a time as the Supreme Court found that it wasn't because public opinion was in favor of segregation and therefore the Constitution could be construed to, to support it. An originalist would say that once the 14th Amendment was passed, then any form of segregation was actually unconstitutional. And so all the time that it was happening, it was illegal. So those are two very different and very important distinctions on how somebody might look at interpreting the Constitution. Now, as important as that document is, and as much as it governs our lives, and as much as the laws of your country govern your life, the scriptures are far more important. And the reason I say that is the the concepts that we learn in the scriptures can have an even longer lasting impact upon our happiness and our relationship with God than can the laws of man. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what Paul's original intent was and whether or not we should use the scriptures or interpret the scriptures according to an originalist philosophy or whether we should follow a living document sort of philosophy in regard to the scriptures. Okay, so we're, we're in the, the book of Romans today. And uh, first, I want to say, if you're reading the book of Romans and you're having a tough time understanding what's going on, it is not your fault. Okay, the, the original, first of all, is extremely dense in its philosophical meanings and therefore difficult to translate. Second of all, the way that it was translated in what we have today in the King James Version is not the clearest of translations. And finally, the, the meaning of words, both from the time that Paul wrote his Greek to the time that the King James Version was translated, and the meaning of words in English from the time King James' team did their translation to today has also changed. So we're going through this triple lens of time, translation, and time to understand something. So what I would recommend is that you read first the book of Romans and the other epistles of Paul in a newer translation, and then go back. I do recommend definitely that you read the King James Version, but 
if you want to understand what's going on, uh, my favorite translation for this kind of stuff is called the Good News Translation, and that can be found on BibleHub.com. So that's kind of fun to uh, be able to get sort of a clear and idiomatic English understanding of what Paul is trying to say. And in some cases, the sense of the, the meaning of the sentence will differ from one translation to another, and then you can use your judgment as to what you think Paul actually wanted. And you can read five or six or ten translations if you want to on BibleHub.com, and you can kind of find out what the majority of the scholars doing the translation think. So in the case of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, this is yet another of the parallels between Paul and Alma the Younger in the Book of Mormon. Now, I mentioned this, um, I, I talked extensively about this when we talked about Paul's vision. I mentioned a lot of the parallels, but here's another one. I mean, this letter to the Romans has echoes of Alma's letter to both his sons, Helaman and Coriantin. So in Alma chapter 36, Alma writes about how he was lost irredeemably lost, and then when he started, when he, when he gained a hope in Christ and started asking Christ for forgiveness and salvation, then he saw this, this light in the darkness. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, there's a similar inflection point where he's talking about how lost we all are, and then as soon as he mentions Christ, all of a sudden he's talking about hope and salvation. So compare and contrast Romans 3 with Alma 36. Also, uh, Paul is talking in, this, in, this, in these few chapters of Romans, he's talking about the restoration unto us, the, that God will recompense us according to our deeds and our choices. And that, of course, echoes the, the wonderful restoration chiasmic poem at the end of Alma chapter 41. That's verses 12 through 15. So as you're reading uh, Romans chapter 1 through 6, it's kind of fun to go skip ahead to the Book of Mormon and read maybe chapters 36 through 41 or even just those two chapters individually and kind of compare and contrast the letters of Paul and the letters of Alma. And some other parallels there include that Paul now is going to talk about sexual sin the way Alma does. He's, uh, Alma is definitely giving a lecture to his younger son about uh, just that same sort of sin, the need for humility, and of course the certainty of our choices coming back around to us. So with that brief introduction, let's just begin in Romans chapter 1. And uh, now unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your preference, we've left the narrative section of the New Testament behind. We had, of course, the four Gospels discussing the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And now we, then we had the book of Acts discussing the, the events that occurred afterwards. And now until the end of the year, we're just discussing doctrine. And the doctrine is largely divorced from the history. So on a historical note, I will say that most scholars agree that Paul wrote the, the epistle to the Romans before he ever went to Rome. He didn't know the people that he's writing to. In about the, the year 57, AD 57, during his third missionary journey from the city of Corinth. And there are a few textual clues, and there are also a few extra textual clues, but uh, the important thing is that Paul had never been to Rome. And so you can kind of tell that in the beginning here, and he's telling them, I, I really want to come unto you. And by you, he means those saints living in Rome. If, we, if you ever wondered, who are the Romans? 
it's generally assumed that on the day of Pentecosts, uh, because the city of Jerusalem was just filled with these visiting Jews for the feast from all over the Jewish world, the Roman world, that they would have gone home and in regular correspondence with Peter and the other apostles would have established churches. And doubtless, some of those early converts were the, the mainstays, the backbone of the church in Rome. And so Paul would have heard about not only the church as a whole, but he would have heard about individuals in the church, and he would have admired the stories of their faithfulness from afar. And so his desire, ever since he had the vision of Christ on the road to Damascus, he'd been promised that he would bear witness in different places and in front of kings and in front of different kinds of people. And God told him he'd be a minister and a witness. And obviously to Paul, one of those important promises was that he would go and bear testimony in Rome. And so the, the epistle to the Romans is his expression of that desire and his embrace of that promise by Jesus that he would eventually uh, be there among them. And so he's He's attempting to establish a rapport, a relationship with the saints in Rome before he arrives so that he'll have friends and there will be a a mutual love and respect between Paul, the apostle, and the saints that he's going to address and visit and teach when he arrives. He doesn't, uh, I don't think he expects probably at the time he writes the letter that he's going to be carried there involuntarily. He's going to be a prisoner when he arrives in Rome. He probably thought that just like the other missionary journeys that he went on, that he would go to Rome of his own free will. So that's the beginning of the book. That's the uh, introduction to the book of Romans. And Paul starts right in talking about uh, the way that we've all fallen away. So in chapter 1, Paul is kind of talking about the, the Gentiles and the fact that they've fallen away from the truth. So the first two or three chapters of Romans is Paul explaining how we're all lost, we're all sinners, and just exactly how impossible it is for us to return on our own to, to God. And one of, the, one of the chief difficulties facing the church at the time of Paul's third missionary journey is the ongoing conflict between those who were first Jews and then baptized as Christians and those who were Gentiles and without converting first to Judaism became immediate Christians. And therefore, they didn't obey the law of circumcision, they didn't obey the law of Moses, the the more, uh, let's say, onerous strictures of the law of Moses, and they didn't obey the dietary laws found in the Torah. And Collectively, this, this set of duties we, uh, is, are what Paul calls works. So nowadays, uh, we've, let me put it this way, we've inherited uh, what you might call a, a Lutheran interpretation of what works means. This was Martin Luther's view of what Paul was talking about when he talked about faith versus works. And that interpretation was so powerful and so popular that it's generally adopted, we, we kind of don't even realize that we're doing it. But if we go back to the original, again, we're getting back to the, do we want to treat the scriptures as a living document, so uh, we'll take Martin Luther's interpretation rather than what Paul originally meant, or do we want to be originalists and go back and figure out what Paul was talking about? Now, it seems clear, first of all, when, when Paul talks about works, 
uh, within just a few verses before or after, you will find some mention of the law. And law in the New Testament can almost always be, maybe 99% of the cases can be uh, attributed directly to a mention of the law of Moses or the Torah. In the Old Testament, the word law and Torah were the same. So they generally meant the scriptures. Obeying the law and the, obeying the Torah were the same thing. Paul, as an observant Jew, largely meant this when he said law. So Paul speaking of law and works, the works of the law. So think about the, uh, the sacrifices that the Jews were commanded to perform, the way they were commanded to eat. In fact, there were not only the Ten Commandments, but then uh, there were another 603 that followed. So 613 total commandments in the law of Moses. These are the works. So when Paul talks about works, he's not saying any works that you or I might do. He's saying specifically when you are uh, performing your duties, your covenant obligations under the law of Moses, and uh, more specifically under the Mosaic covenant in the, that the people of Israel made, before Mount Sinai, that they would follow God and he would be a God to them. He, they would be his people. The, the works that are performed under this covenant are not what save the Jews. And that leads us to the concept of grace. So before we, before we read any further, uh, just in chapter 1, Paul jumps right in and starts talking about how the Gentiles have fallen away from God. And this brings, this brings the necessity in for the idea of grace. Now, to, to use another Book of Mormon analogy, the, the sons of Mosiah, they go to teach among the Lamanites, just as Paul goes to teach. He leaves his own people and goes to teach among the Gentiles. And one of the first things that the sons of Mosiah would always teach about is the fall of Adam. And, uh, from a, and I've brought this up before, but as, from a storytelling perspective, uh, the first thing you try to do is show uh, a character who's living a, a happy life or has some promise or hope or unfulfilled uh, aspiration. And then, uh, as, my, as, as a film professor once put it to us, he said, you, you dig a hole, you dig a pit, and then you make your main character fall into it. And then you spend the rest of the story getting him out. So the, the missionaries in the Book of Mormon, they would explain this terrible calamity that came upon the human race when Adam fell. And that's how they would begin their teachings. They created a need in their listeners for some sort of savior, and then they explained that Jesus would come. Well, obviously, this is the exact purpose that, that Jesus was preordained to come to earth, was to redeem us from the fall and then to exalt us. So that was a powerful missionary tool, and Paul does the same thing. He starts out talking about all the evil that men perform and choose, and he eventually talks specifically about the fall of Adam and how it affected all of us and how it brought death upon all mankind. And that's when he has sufficiently distressed us to start to dig, dig us out of the hole that he's put us into. And so in chapter 1, Paul talks about how the evil of the Gentiles has brought them to death. And uh, then he, he completes this discussion by mentioning how important it is that we don't judge other people for sins that we ourselves are committing. Now, this is an interesting chapter. There are a couple of things that are hidden here that I think are intentional on Paul's part. And uh, so I'm going to point them out to you. You can make, your, make up your own mind. 
Um, so in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, we can skip the little greetings at the beginning, but in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul starts talking about the fact that the Gentiles have rejected clear evidence of God. In other words, that everyone can know and should know and does, in fact, know that God exists. But because the Gentiles were so, they wanted to be wise, they considered themselves wise. Or, uh, as he puts it, they, they made themselves wise and, there, and thereby became foolish. That's not a direct quote, it's a paraphrase. But he, he's saying that because they were so wise that they chose not to believe in God, this led to all kinds of sinful behavior. First, through idolatry. Now, understanding idolatry, I mentioned this a week or two ago, that the, the way that we think of idolatry is people bowing themselves before uh, graven images. But actually, to worship these idols, to worship these pagan gods, generally meant that people could follow the, the lusts, their carnal desires. So the lust might be for money or power or for sex. And if whatever that lust was, you followed it, in following it, you were actually worshiping the god of that lust. So if, if the lust was bloodthirst, you were worshiping the god of war. If the lust was actual sexual lust, then you were worshiping Venus. And the way that uh, this was considered, whole, these all were considered holy acts, but obviously only by pagans. By Jews, they were considered idolatrous and extremely sinful. So Paul says, first, this pride that led people not to believe in God, but instead to believe in all of these idols, led them into all kinds of sinful behaviors. And so as if we have to be careful as we read this that we don't dismiss Paul's warning as only applying to people that live in a paganistic culture. Because just because we don't bow ourselves before graven images doesn't mean we don't still engage in the same paganistic or idolatrous practices. The, the practices that people, that idolatrous people followed back then are the same practices we follow today. There was even a god, Mammon, which today is pronounced Mammon, which is wealth. And how many people are materialistic today? And we think, oh yeah, I guess it's meta in a metaphorical sense, we're making riches our God. Well, the truth is, it's not really all that metaphorical, because when people made riches their actual God, they acted in much the same way that we would today when we uh, follow the things of the world, the praise of the world, or the wealth of the world, we do basically exactly what they did back then to worship that God. And so our acts are, in fact, idolatrous, even though we think they're metaphorically so, they're literally so. And so these, these warnings of Paul about idolatrous behavior are actually quite timely even though they feel a little bit outdated if you read them without the right mindset. And Paul describes a ton of terrible behaviors, and this is one of the chapters that is very notable for his description of homosexuality. And I think it's worth mentioning, well, we'll come back a little bit to um, how we can look, up, look upon this in today's world, because this is a very uh, current topic. So at, towards the end of the chapter, Paul talks about people who, this, this idolatry, this first, the denial of God and the pride that led people to deny God and deny their conscience, which told them that God was real by all of his, the miracle of his creations, uh, has, has led them even into murder and, and lying and, 
And not only, and, and the, the chapter ends with Paul saying, not only did they know that the, the wages or the penalty for these kind of sins was death, but they were happy to convince other people to do it. And I pointed this out a few weeks ago, but it was sort of an aside, and maybe most of you won't remember, but this actually, this, this chapter, this admonition, applies perfectly to Paul. Now, on a timeline, Paul is writing this epistle before he goes to Jerusalem and is arrested, and during that arrest, he speaks to the mob, and he says to the mob, I was present when they murdered Stephen. And he, he uses the word, uh, at some, in one of his accounts of this event, he uses the word murdered. When thy martyrs were murdered, he says to God. And I was complicit. I was happy to hold the cloaks of those who were doing it. And if, as we read this final verse, not only were you happy to do it, but you were happy to tell others to do it and, and to assist them to do it. So the attitude, Paul is describing his own attitude, something that he would, uh, after he wrote this epistle, he would not be ashamed to confess publicly. His own attitude was so sinful that not only was it deserving of death, but he was happy to, to spread this attitude around. Again, we find another uh, parallel from Alma chapter 36, where he talks about all the people that he murdered. And, or in other words, he led astray from God's truth. And so Paul was in this state. And then he begins chapter 2 by talking about how we can't, uh, we can't judge each other. So he's saying, do you, do you think that you're pure? Do you think that you're living so well that you, you can look at another and tell them that they're going to die? And yet you're committing these same sins yourself. And it, it could be understood, or if you know the context, at least you could, that's one possible interpretation that Paul was saying, and I personally also don't judge. So this is, this is almost like a counterpart to the admonition of Christ that we shouldn't judge each other uh, lest we be judged right? We, for which with that same measure that we meet, it shall be measured to us again. And a lot of people think, well, then I can never judge anyone's actions. I can never say that anything is wrong. But Paul is quite clearly here taking a firm stance against sinfulness and all sorts of sinful behavior. So he's overtly taking that stance, but covertly he's also saying, and I myself am one of these sinners. And therefore, I have no trouble saying how sinful all of this behavior is, but I also want everyone to know that it's not our job to decide this sinful behavior for other people and their, their particular level of sinfulness. It's our job to, to decide our own level of sinfulness and take steps to correct it. And he spends chapter 1 talking about the, the sins of the Gentiles, which include uh, the the woman and the man leaving the natural use of the other. And so I guess the point I would make about that is that Paul himself is saying, uh, these, are, these are horrible sins, and yet he also, then he follows it up by saying, uh, are you, if you are 
seeing the, the lies in someone else's behavior and not seeing the lies in your own behavior, the pride, the, the fact that you're making yourself a fool by being too wise to believe in God, then you're missing the point and you're falling into hypocrisy. And I think we could all do well to remember that because there are so many sins in this world and because we sin differently from someone else, as Elder Holland has put it and others, that do, then we think we're better than them. But um, it, as important as it is to remember to avoid sinful behavior and to have the correct attitude about it, it's, it's also important to remember that in relation to God, we're all equally fallen. Or put better, perhaps, would be to say that we are more alike than we are different. And uh, that seems to be one of the main ideas of this epistle for Paul. And in chapter 2, then, Paul uh, proceeds to talk about the Jews. So the Gentiles have fallen away from God, and now he talks about how the Jews have fallen away from God. And their particular duty was to keep the law of Moses, was to keep the Mosaic Covenant, and they've consistently failed. They've failed up until the present time for Paul, which was in killing their own Messiah. And this idea continues uh, all the way through chapter 3. Paul, through most of chapter 3, then he begins comparing Gentiles to Jews and saying, are Jews better or Gentiles better? And he addresses this conflict that exists between them. Those who were, who were without the law of circumcision and those who have lived their lives subject to the law of circumcision. And by circumcision, he means all of those quote-unquote works which are part of the law of Abraham and the law of Moses, by which Jews thought that they secured their uh, claim on the grace of God. So we're going to spend a few minutes in, uh, in just a second talking about grace and the meaning of it to both the Christians that believed as Paul did and the Jews that, that, he, that he was teaching and that he came from, what they both believed about grace. And I think you'll, you'll be a little bit surprised. He's quoting Psalm 119 when he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So he's, he's expressing to the Romans how much anticipation he has to come and share the gospel with them. And then he says, because I'm not ashamed of it. This is a quote of uh, Psalm 119, verse 46. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. And this was one of the promises for Paul. So we can recognize that this would have been an important verse for Paul, one, Psalm 119, 46, because he recognized that this was the promise that Christ gave him, that also this, the same jubilation that David expressed in the psalm that he felt about bearing testimony before kings. And so Paul quotes that in this verse and then follows it up from therein, in this, now we're in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, we began this episode by talking about the fact that Paul discusses here in the book of Romans and in Ephesians and in a few other places that we're saved solely by faith and that the grace of God is all we, is all we need and that it is not by any of our works. So I'm going to give you a little bit of Greek uh, background. Uh, first of all, here's a word that, that might be easy, easier than the others. The word for works is erga in Greek, 
And that is actually, there's a cognate in English, and uh, it's a physics term. It's, uh, there's a unit of work in the English system called an erg. So if you've ever done crossword puzzles, you might have run, run across that word. So um, it comes from the Greek word erga. So the works that are done in obedience to the law, so uh, we mentioned that law means law of Moses. These works that are performed, these erga, are actually the works of the law of Moses, circumcision, temple sacrifice, Sabbath observance, and other commandments that are obeyed according to the law of Moses. Now, the Jews had a very specific belief about grace, just as the Christians did. So often today we think the Jews lived their lives in a legalistic way and that they believed that the law was what saved them. Uh, and we actually find this idea expressed in the Book of Mormon in the account of Abinadi speaking before the, the priests of the wicked king Noah. Right, And he's, he asked them, what do you think? Does salvation come through the law of Moses? And they say, yes. And this is the same idea that Paul is expressing because then Abinadi comes back and says, no, you will be saved if you follow the law, but salvation doesn't come through the law. So this was a, this was a well-known understanding even before the time of Christ. And Abinadi, even though it, the Book of Mormon doesn't often apply this word to uh, the people, the characters in the Book of Mormon itself, the, they were all Jews. And so this was a Jewish understanding, and Paul had this same understanding. The understanding is this. The grace of God is, is, can be defined as his disproportionate willingness to forgive our sins from the works that we do to earn that forgiveness. Let me say that a little bit differently. Grace means the balance between what we have to do to earn forgiveness and the actual, what God has to do to give us forgiveness is way off balance. There is no proportionality. There is no equality of what we give to what we get. And Jews understood this very well. Uh, that is why they have such a thing as the Day of Atonement. That is why they have the Passover, where they celebrate God passing over them even though he didn't have to. The Day of Atonement where they take one lamb and sacrifice it for the whole of the nation, and then they plead with God for his forgiveness. They take a goat and they place their hands on the goat, and this symbolically invested the goat with the sins of all of Israel, and then they would let the goat escape into the wilderness and taking its sins with it, taking Israel's sins with it, right? They understood that they were not atoning or expiating their own sins, that it, God was forgiving them in a way that they did not, they could not deserve. So this, the, the idea of grace was very familiar to them. In fact, um, there is a word in Hebrew, and we discussed this last year when we talked about uh, loving kindness, and we also di discussed it when we talked about John chapter 1. Now John, when he introduces uh, Jesus Christ, as the word, he says, the word was full of grace and truth. And this is actually a little-known reference to um, a verse in the book of Exodus where uh, Moses sees the Lord in the mountain. The Lord passes by before him and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. So 
because the words are translated a little differently, we don't often recognize that this, uh, this verse, Exodus 34, verse 6, is um, the original for John saying that the, the Messiah was full, the word was full of grace and truth. But that's what it means. So let's talk a little bit about what, uh, what this word means. It's translated in the Old Testament as mercy or as goodness or as loving kindness. And God is describing as being abundant in goodness and truth or full, and in other words, full of grace and truth. This word chesed is, is not just love. It is not just loving kindness. It is described as covenant love. It's love that is undeserved, that is given to us because God has promised it, but not because we deserve it. Um, and we'll, I'm going to talk at the end of the lesson today uh, a little bit about how we can better understand what that love looks like. But um, the point is that the, the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament Jews, they had a very good understanding of God's disproportionate love, his covenant love toward them. And this, this is the idea, this, this word chesed is, is the idea that New Testament uh, apostles expressed by using the word grace in, in Greek. And so that word is actually charis, the word from which we get charity or the love of Christ, right? So grace is the forgiveness of God. It is the disproportionate willingness of God to overlook our sins. And obviously, so what Paul is saying is we're saved by grace, which is obviously true. But what Paul is pointing out, and the main idea of um, any of the passages in which Paul talks about we're saved by grace and by faith, is that salvation comes by grace, by charis, yes. And we aren't saved by these erga, these works of the law of Moses. And this would have been a familiar concept to all of his listeners who were Jewish. They would have understood, no, we know we're not saved by the law of Moses because we've seen this goat, the scapegoat, escape into the wilderness, released every year with our sins upon its head. We've seen this lamb be sacrificed in front of the temple and then its blood carried in to be sprinkled into the Holy of Holies, carrying our sins with it. We know that we're not saved by works. We know we're saved by grace. But grace comes through the works. And so the point Paul is making is not that grace exists and it's disproportionate, but the point he's making is the law itself is not the means by which you actually obtain grace. He is pointing out that Christ was always the substance for which the law was simply the form. And let me put that another way. He's, he's trying to teach the Jews that they've always understood the concept of grace, but that they, they've missed the means by which it comes unto them. They've thought that grace was accessed by the, the Mosaic Covenant, and in fact it was. But the Mosaic Covenant was just a skin, you might say, put on the means of grace because they weren't ready for the truth, which was their Savior was the actual strength underneath that outer covering. He was the skeleton under the skin of the, of the covenant. It was Jesus that delivered grace, and it was the law that represented Jesus and not the other way around. And so Paul is trying to make this point by talking to Jews and then to, to the Gentiles who perhaps weren't as familiar with the concept of grace, he talks to them about their pride and their paganism. 
and he brings them both to the same place, which is we're all lost before God. And and then then he does this wonderful thing, which is repeated by the the missionaries in the Book of Mormon times. He talks about the fall of Adam, and now we're uh, looking at chapter four. He's talked about the example of Abraham. So he, the Jews versus Gentiles, who's better? Guess what? You've both fallen short of what you said you would do, of what you knew you should do. And you both are in need of this grace, of this disproportionate forgiveness, of this loving kindness that God has to offer. And so for you Jews, I'm going to give you an additional example of Abraham. Uh, Abraham is your father, and you receive this, this covenant of, of circumcision through him. But guess what? Abraham was righteous before he was circumcised. So he's, he's the spiritual father, not only of Jews, but of Gentiles as well. And therefore, you can both be united that in that you are the spiritual offspring of Abraham. And even Abraham had need of grace. And, and then that's when, uh, so that's chapter 4, and then that's when in chapter 5, he gets to the fall of Adam. And he talks about how Christ's sacrifice reverses the fall of Adam. It's interesting because in the 2015 address by uh, Elder Uchtdorf in, in the April conference of 2015 called The Gift of Grace, he talks about how the, the job of the atonement is not just to lead us backward to reverse the fall, but to lead us upward. And so Paul actually, the roots of that idea are here in the, the epistle to the Romans. When Paul talks about in chapter 5, he talks about the fact that the atonement of Christ is more, is not only equal to the fall, it not only redeems us, you know, by one man came death unto all, by one man came sin unto all, and so by one man, so that, that man is Adam, and by one man came life unto all, by one man came forgiveness unto all, and that man is Christ. But then he goes on to say, and the, the, the cure is even more powerful than the disease, or the, the, uh, the atonement is even stronger than the fall. So if you want to read this verse, it's Romans 5, verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Now, I'm going to read this uh, also in the Good News translation, and maybe it'll make a little more sense to you. I'm going to start in verse 14. So this is uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 14. But from the time of Adam to the time of Moses... Death ruled over all human beings, even over those who did not sin in the same way that Adam did when he disobeyed God's command. Adam was a figure of the one who was to come. But the two are not the same, because God's free gift is not like Adam's sin. It is true that many people died because of the sin of that one man. But God's grace is much greater, and so is his free gift to so many people through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ." Now, does that make a little more sense? You can read that and, and, and think to yourself, oh my gosh, I understand now how much greater the atonement is than the fall. It's not just reversing the course of the fall and bringing us life where there was death, but it's also bringing us much higher than we could have reached had we never fallen. Uh, this is one of, the, one of the most powerful arguments that the fall wasn't an accident, as most Christians believe but was actually part of God's plan from the beginning because the, the atonement of Jesus Christ is so much greater and the power and the redemption that is brought by it is so much greater than the suffering 
and the spiritual death that is brought by the fall of Adam. Now that brings us to one final word that we'll talk about, and that word is faith. So if we go to, uh, back to Romans chapter 3, uh, we find this word faith, and, and faith is the, is the pistis, or P-I-S-T-I-S. So we've got grace, which is charis, and we've got uh, works, which is erga, and we've got faith, which is pistis. And uh, you might remember that we talked about loving kindness or mercy or grace, which in Hebrew is chesed. So we've got these four words. You can remember them if you want to. It's kind of fun for me to talk about them. But um, this idea comes from a blog that I like to follow uh, in, on Patheos, which is called Benjamin the Scribe. It's written by Ben Spackman. He's an LDS scholar, and he, he quotes a book by uh, Matthew Bates called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And uh, as the title suggests, the author believes that the word faith can be translated, and in fact should be translated, as allegiance. And so he points to a number of contemporary examples where belief and faith actually mean that somebody was willing to follow and do the works of the person that they uh, had faith in. And uh, so faith was not simply believing in someone. It was following them and giving them loyalty and action. And in, uh, in fact, uh, it's often used in the sense of military loyalty. And so one would even lay down their life as an act of faith. Uh, this is a far cry from the idea that we believe in Jesus Christ and have to do nothing else. The title of this article is called Covenant and Law, Grace, Works, and Faith by Ben Spackman. I recommend you read that entire article. It's very fascinating. It's a very well-reasoned response to the idea that we're saved by grace alone or by faith alone or by works alone. Obviously, it's none of those. The, these, these three concepts are tied in so uh, inextricably from each other uh, that there's no point in trying to say we're saved by anything alone. Uh, as, as Nephi eloquently said, we're saved obviously by grace after what we can do. So uh, do we take this word, pistis, as it was originally intended, or do we make the scriptures a living document and thereby render it however we think uh, modern sensibility should render it and change the meaning? And the result of all this, at least as far as the chapters we have uh, for today is concerned, is in chapter 6 that we, Paul asked the question, and this question is echoed by Elder uh, Uchtdorf in his talk from May 2015, should we then sin so that grace can manifest itself more fully in our lives? And he says, God forbid. The fact that we have accepted Christ will be evident in our actions from then on. So if, if it doesn't show up in what we do and what we believe and what we say and what we think and what we feel and what we're willing, in other words, if it doesn't show up in our faith, in our allegiance, uh, to God, then it seems likely we never truly had that allegiance to begin with. Now, for a, for a modern example of this kind of meaning for the word faith, uh, if you ever have bought a treasury bond, treasury bonds are printed by the United States government, and they come with the saying, backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. They don't mean that they have faith in you when when you, buy the, when you buy the bond, they don't have faith in you. They give you their faith. In other words, 
The, the U.S. government gives you their allegiance, they give you their loyalty, they give you their promise that they will perform the bond. They will pay you the amount of the bond when the bond matures. That's what faith means in that context. And so we still do actually use that word in that way in some uh, contexts. And so the word, the word faith, meaning allegiance, is how it's meant by Paul to be interpreted. And so when we give allegiance, then that presupposes that there's somebody on the other side of some arrangement to whom we give it. And Paul, during these, uh, this entire epistle, but uh, notably during the chapters that we're studying today, chapters 1 through 6, he mentions the title Christ many times. And this is not just to get us used to thinking of Jesus Christ as one phrase, but it's putting Jesus as in his role as the Messiah, as our covenant partner. He is the one, he is our, our, our boss, or as uh, Brother Spackman puts it, he's our patron. When we give allegiance, we, give it, we don't just give it uh, to, the, to the void, to the ether. We actually have to give it to someone, to a patron. So we offer our allegiance and our loyalty to Jesus. And Christ, the word Christ, is the title that defines the role of Jesus as our covenant partner. And so Paul's whole point here is that Gentiles and Jews, we both have this incredible and pressing need for the grace of God, for his loving kindness, which is totally undeserved, and yet which is the most necessary thing in the world, and which we cannot receive by default. We actually have to make a choice to receive it. And so we, we leave behind our sinful ways, and then the symbol of that is that we don't return to those sinful ways. We don't want to sin so that God can show forth grace. We actually want to love him the way he loved us, and we want to have allegiance for him. So this is, this is the point of Romans chapter 1 through 6, is that when we have this kind of allegiance that can be called faith, that God is capable of blessing us with his grace. Now, I want to point out another conference talk in closing, and that is the talk, Behold Thy Mother. This is another talk from 2015, this time in the October conference by Elder Holland. And this, um, so this talk talks about the, the words bear, born, carry, and deliver. So I'll read a little bit of it. He quotes a few scriptures in, in, from Isaiah and says, He hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. A majestic Latter-day vision emphasized that Jesus came into the world to bear the sins of the world. Both ancient and modern scripture testify that he redeemed them and bore them and carried them all the days of old. A favorite hymn pleads with us to hear your great deliverer's voice. These are descriptions of Jesus. And then uh, Elder Holland continues, Bear born, carry, deliver. These are powerful, heartening, messianic words. And then skipping a paragraph, can you hear in this language another arena of human endeavor in which we use words like bear and born, carry and lift, labor and deliver? As Jesus said to John while in the very act of atonement, so he says to us all, behold thy mother. Now the reason I bring up this talk is that we we might have a hard time imagining I think, I think it's a very human trait that we, we paint God at times to be more stern than he actually is. And this is because we don't actually encounter human beings that are as loving 
and forgiving as God is. Generally, authority figures on some level are exacting or are unfair or are mean, and therefore we have a hard time comprehending this idea of chesed, this idea of loving kindness, mercy, grace. And so I wanted, I wanted to talk a little bit about this, this uh, conference address of Elder Holland's because um, when he talks about the love of Christ, he says this, Today I declare from this pulpit what has been said here before, that no love in mortality comes closer to approximating the pure love of Jesus Christ than the selfless love of a demoted mother has for her child. When Isaiah, speaking messianically, wanted to convey Jehovah's love, he invoked the image of a mother's devotion. Can a woman forget her sucking child, he asks. How absurd, he implies, though not as absurd as thinking that Christ will ever forget us. So if you want to understand the, the disproportionate love that Christ has for us, the closest thing that we can imagine would be imagining that a woman is going to abandon a child that she has just born. Now, can this child do for its mother what the mother can do for it? Of course not. It's helpless. It's totally dependent on the, the idea that um, its mother is never going to abandon it and is going to sacrifice its own interests in order to feed it, to nurture it, to give it what it needs. So if you want to understand the loving kindness the disproportionate love, the, for, the amount of forgiveness that God has prepared to give you. I hope you have this kind of a mother, but if you didn't, I know that you've witnessed it at some point in your life. And if you are this kind of a mother, then I wanted to give praise to you with this uh, lesson as well. I know that there are some of you out there who are suffering, who are probably thinking that uh, God has forgotten you, but it is the greatest of honors that God would, through his prophets, use you as an example of his own loving kindness. And so, uh, to all the mothers out there, I just wanted to say that God has not forgotten you. And to all the people who are wondering, does God really love me? Can God possibly forgive me? And what can I offer in proportion to God's love? The answer is, yes, he loves you. And you don't have to offer something in proportion to his love. What you have to do is give him your allegiance and he will love you as a mother loves her child in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.